0: One of the lessons I've been teaching for years is that, you know, I think we need to understand how our finances work before we become investors. Hey, it's JP. Hi,
1: it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Jason Kokok. Yeah. Did I say that correctly? It's actually
0: Kojak, but you said it how it's spelled, like everybody else. So that's good.
1: <laughs> I should have asked you that off camera first. <laughs> so Jason, I guess we kind of got to know of each other because we were both nominated as um, preferred authors for the American Homeowners Association. So yeah, tell me a little bit about how you got to author a book and how to do what you do today.
0: Yeah. So I'm based in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, moved here about 20 years ago and, and started a, uh, a real estate team. Uh, I have a co-owner of a real estate team here, and that's grown over the years. And a, and a big base of what we've done is, is helping investors, kind of mom and pop investors, you know, people that are going to own less than probably 10 homes, a little bit of multifamily sprinkled in here. And, and I've always had a desire to uh, invest myself. So about 20 years ago, I started doing some investing myself as I was working with clients. Um, and then about a decade ago, I kind of had this urge to see if I could teach it. And so I started teaching. I, I kind of got a lucky break. I uh, went to a local community college. It happens to be the biggest community college in our state and uh, presented what I thought was a kind of an interesting course and and uh, took a little legwork. But, but they finally let me uh, let me teach it. I didn't have any teaching experience. So you can imagine they were a little worried about that and and that was about 10 12 years ago and it's been really really popular and so you know over the past couple of years i had noticed that there seemed to be a uh a kind of a gap of really reliable trusted information for novice investors who who wanted to start um obviously there's a lot of books out there and seminars but a lot of them you know seem to have this kind of upsell at the end and And I don't know. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm all about if you can make some money, great. But it felt like those novice investors weren't maybe getting the full story. Um, And so I kind of set out to to nothing earth shattering. There's no mind boggling information in the book, but it is kind of an an A to Z, uh, nothing hidden, as much information as I could get out For novice investors, and so that was released in in April, and it's it's done pretty well. And and then, as you noted, I was asked to kind of do an article similar to yourself to kind of help spread the word.
1: Cool. But if we um, so let's just back up a little bit because I want to hear a little bit about your story before you tell us a bit more about the book. So, you start out as an agent. So I'm not really familiar geographically with what you know what North Carolina looks like, but I'm assuming you did a lot of kind of single family.
0: Yes, so uh, predominantly in our market uh we we're, we're single family homes, and of course, you've got townhomes and condos but but I would say you know sixty percent of what we sell is is single family in our market, and you know our, our median home price has gone up obviously as as it seems like everybody's has and so now we're in the low to mid four hundreds for a median when you know reality we're probably a three hundred and fifty to four hundred median type of market. And, and, you know, our, our client base is, is everybody, right? We we do, you know, move up and first time home buyers, a lot of relocation. We get a lot of relocation in our market. We have an area here called Research Triangle Park, it's RTP for short. And it's kind of like the East coast, Silicon Valley is kind of the best way to think about it. So most people are familiar with Silicon Valley, San Francisco, kind of those high tech areas. Um, and then in the middle of the country, we have Austin, Texas, which is kind of a, the middle ground, if you will, a, a none of those. And then we're considered kind of the East Coast. So We have a lot of high tech jobs. And what has followed that has been a lot of finance jobs and, and stuff like that. And we also have you know, a, a good bit of medical here because we have Duke University, if you're familiar or heard of them. And, and so we have kind of this wide blend of people that move here.
1: Okay, and so you start out as an agent in that market. Then you decide, okay, now I'm gonna have a team of agents. So, what was that transition like?
0: Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, so at first I had started out just as a single agent, and and in the first couple of years I had met uh, some other agents in the office, of course, and and one of the agents, my business partner Jennifer, you know, we had gotten to the point individually where it was kind of like, gosh, we're, we've got no free time, we've got no life, which you know, is kind of a good thing in business. That means you're busy, not so good on the home front. And so we kind of, not at a whim, but not really a big set business plan said, hey, let's see if we can kind of combine forces. If nothing else, I'll cover for you when you're out of town, you'll cover for me. And we, and that over, you know, the first year just involved into, hey, instead of kind of like picking and choosing when I need help, how about we just throw everything in one pot And see how it works, right? Um, so we put everything in one pot and and we just both work really hard and and we're gonna split all the commissions and all that stuff. And so that is how we kind of started our business per se. And then probably about uh I'd say about two years, three years after that, we hired our first assistant, mainly just to help with paperwork and CRM and you know all the basic stuff, you know, when you're on the road sometimes doing all that stuff is is a challenge. I think a lot of a lot of clients don't fully grasp what we do and so it's kind of one of those things if you're really good at what you do uh, the client is going to feel like you're overpaid but if you're if you're bad at what you do (laughs) you know they're also going to feel like you're overpaid so it's, it's a really really difficult thing and then probably after about another year of having an assistant we had just grown to the point that gosh her and i just couldn't handle the amount of business and we were getting back into the no home life type of routine again And so we brought an agent onto the team that had a little bit of experience. And and since then, we've just been growing. We are, I'll use the phrase, we're more boutique. We never usually have more than five to seven agents on the team. We want our agents to be able to, uh, to make decent money. And so we try not to hire anybody else until like our last agent is like, oh my gosh, if you send me one more person. I won't know what to do with them and so that way every we kind of try to make everybody financially happy before we kind of grow too much more so so yeah it's been an adventure for sure and that like i said we started that in uh in in early 2000s and here we are
1: Mm -hmm. so like, I love the down to earth, small is beautiful approach. And I think we're gonna I want to see how that turns into like an investing logic a bit later on. But so you start that in the early 2000s, then, you know, there's the 2008 event. Mm -hmm. At that time, were you already an investor or you were just running your real estate practice? Oh, I I was an investor.
0: Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. I laugh because if you were investing in that time, you know, it was it was interesting. Uh, You know, As an investor at that time, I was faced like anybody else. You know, I had some tenants that had got laid off that, that couldn't pay, you know, rent for a little bit of time there. Um, yet my income was based on real estate sales. And as you know, that was not a popular thing to be doing in, you know, 2008, nine and 10. And so, you know, it was difficult, but I, to be honest with you, I tell people now I am so grateful for that experience. Because I'm a different investor now. And I'm afraid had we not gone through that or I had not gone through that, I would be maybe over-leveraged and overextended and and all of those things that I was in 08 a little bit. And so yeah, it was, it was interesting times for sure.
1: It's so interesting because, you know, up in Canada, we didn't really have the same kind of market correction um, as you guys do. But whenever I interview Americans who were active during that time, they all tell me some version of what you said. Like they all say, look, it was super difficult and it, you know, forced me to really take a step back and think about what I was doing. But it seems like there's an overwhelmingly positive experience coming out of that of saying, well, you know, it made me tighten the screws a little bit and realize like, you know, so I don't know, can you give me maybe one or two kind of lessons that you learned like particular specific things?
0: Two things. One from a, from a, what I buy now, I, I think I was a little bit loose in my buy box as we'll call it. Right. And the reality is now when I purchase a property, if I'm going to hold it for a long-term rental, not something I may renovate and sell quickly, I always want to make sure I'm appealing to the masses. And so before I purchase a property, I say to myself, okay, even in a downturn, is this area going to be maybe more desirable than some other areas, right? Even in a slow time is, do I have enough bedrooms that I can appeal to the masses? So from a product standpoint, from a house standpoint, I'm more particular now. And I always, I kind of take this pessimistic view now, like, Hey, if I have to sell this in a down market, Can I be one of the first ones to sell? So, so that's how I look at it differently than I did before then, because before then I always had the idea that real estate values always went up and there was always a buyer and there is, I miscalculated how long it may take to find that buyer in, in a downtime. Second thing, like I said, that I learned that wasn't necessarily kind of house related, but more personal and and investment related was that it's okay to clean up your balance sheet every once in a while. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I think sometimes as investors and maybe for right or wrong, I, I think some of us always think, oh, you you hold the property forever or or you never sell a property or, or you know, those type of mentalities when you're thinking about long term investments. And I kind of look at it a little differently, especially since then. I, I kind of look at it as my real estate investments are almost like my 401 or my retirement account. OK, and um, I'm not sure how your stock market works, but I'm, I'm sure they're similar enough and, and the reality is, if you were to look at your retirement account, you know, a stock or a company you may have owned 20 years ago, you may no longer own in there right now. Yet You're still doing that for the long term. And so what I mean by that is I started to say, okay, Hey, look, if I've squeezed the juice out of this house as much as I kind of can, and now I'm just going to get average returns, it's okay to sell. It's okay to, to pay taxes on the profits. It's okay to do those things. And to look for a different property that may give me a higher rate of return in the upcoming future. Um, Whereas before that downturn in 08, my mentality was, oh, just buy as much as you can and hold it forever. Um, And yes, that very well over 10, 20, 30 years may be a great strategy, but our lives don't remain the same over that 10, 20, 30 years. You, you know, we have children, we have families, we have job law, you know, all these different things that happen. And so I, I did, like I said, I, I tweaked how I look at properties and I tweaked how I look at my financing because of those couple years that were, we'll call it tough and interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's the great piece of advice. I actually remember I had a you know a conversation with a family accountant a while ago when I was starting out and he said, You know, I had this idea that, oh, just, you know, buy as many properties and hold them for as long as possible, try to pay down your mortgage and like hope that one day you're not going to have any more mortgage on it. And he's like, you know, Terry, like a building has a life and there's a time to buy it and there's a time to sell it. And like you kind of want to have an eye on that. And I, you know, I walked away from the conversation. I was like, huh. Maybe I need to change how I look at things because like you said, you might have a particular like value add or you might have a particular strategy that can do something to up the value or make the property run a little bit better. And like once you've done that, maybe the right answer is to hold it and maybe the right answer is to flip it to someone who just wants to have an investment they can forget about or who has a different strategy for it.
0: Yeah, it's it's and that's a great point. And, and you know, alluding to that are things like, you know, okay, so. I always teach when, I, when I'm teaching people, I say, look, you know, you may come into this class and not own any homes. And in your mind, you say, I want to own 10 homes or 20 homes. And I say, don't view it as 10 or 20 homes. You own 10 or 20 HVACs, 10 or 20 roofs, 10 or 20 hot water heaters. That's what you own. Ten, you know, all the windows, the foundations, the kitchens, the, you know, the faucets, you know, the toilets, you know. So I say, don't view it as this. Beautiful thing. View it as your car in your driveway, and you replace the brakes and the tires, and nobody's happy about cutting that check. When you multiply that, if you had ten cars in your driveway, gosh, you know that can be something you really have to pay attention to. And so, I think sometimes it's it's just the mindset that you have to kind of shift, especially the beginner and novice investors, because they see what's on the internet, they hear about the people who are making tons of money, and and that's great. But there's a lot more to that story that, that isn't always shown and, and people kind of can get themselves in a tight spot.
1: Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And so like, if we shift a little bit to um, the topic of your book, because I guess that's the material that we're getting into here, there's kind of two things I want to ask you. So the first one is, you know, when you have people starting out, and I think a lot of our audience is um, either looking to begin or else they've got, you know, one or two properties and want to scale into something mid-range. Right? So let's say somebody who has not done anything or they've got one property and now they they're wondering what's the next step. What are some places you see people trip up and what are something that they can maybe do to get over those initial hurdles to get going?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that we see when people are trying to scale, even if it's just from one to two is a lot of times the financing. You know, I I see people that kind of trip themselves up in, in the financing aspect where maybe they haven't saved as much as they should. And so they're getting into financing vehicles that are a little little challenging um, or or could be. I also see people on that same token that will try to use that first property for leverage to, to get cash out to go buy a second property. And that's a great strategy. Nothing wrong with that strategy. But you have to understand that all of a sudden now your debt on property A could be significantly higher. And so... You know, if you're going to do a growth strategy, I, I think you have to, before you do that, I, I think you have to understand, okay, what is my end goal and, and how many homes do I really need? And, you know, how long do I have to accumulate those homes? I, I, I guess the point of that is just to say, I think a lot of people just start running and buying and buying and buying. And, and then they come to realize, wow, oh, maybe I didn't need all that. And so I'm a big quality over quantity. And and so I see people trip up with that, especially if they get a little confidence on property one or property two. Man, I'll see them do great on property one or property two, and then they'll buy property three that's falling in on itself, and they have no construction experience or have never done a rehab. And, And so those are the things that I see people trip up, and it's typically a lack of education or a lack of planning. I think those are the two that really get people in that stage.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's also funny because I think one of the differences between the U S and Canada is the, um, like the, the speed at which you can run. Like we have a lot more controls, like financing controls. We have Mm -hmm. a lot more, there's a lot more barriers to doing various things. And Mm -hmm. so like, you know, the, the go fast, 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 some people are able to go fast, 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 but here it's like sometimes getting over the regulatory hurdles is, um, is a bit bigger, Yeah. but yeah. How about anything else? Like, do you see something else where people tend to trip themselves up?
0: Uh, You know, I, I think sometimes they get, they will buy, let's say you own two single family houses, for instance. I think there's steps before you maybe go buy a 10 unit multifamily type of thing. So I'm not talking about a big apartment, but we will see people that will get a little bit under their belt, one or two single families. And then they have this desire to make this substantial leap into something else and and that's fine if again you have that knowledge to do, but they're different investment vehicles and they don't run the same. And so that's a place that I see more novice investors kind of trip up. I think some of that too is is we call it here in the States, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm. where it's basically, you know, gosh, I own a couple investment properties and now I'm in this investment world where I now talk to investors or I'm on. You know, I listened to a lot of seminars, you know, et cetera, and they read all these books and all this stuff and, and all of a sudden they think, oh gosh, the next step is to go here. And a lot of times I just want to say, but you're perfecting this. You, you maybe you don't need to get out of buying a single family. If you're really good at that and you're an expert in that, do you need to jump to something unfamiliar and add all this extra risk? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see people that do that quite a bit. That kind of trip them up, and I think again, I don't think they're doing it necessarily for the financial gain aspect. I think a lot of it is, oh, I think this is the logical next step, and it's like, well, maybe not. If you're really good at A, stick with A. You'll probably make more money.
1: Mm-hmm. I think you know that's. I think that's really great advice, and it's actually funny. Like you know, off camera before we were saying how i think our books are actually quite similar Mm -hmm. and like this is exactly one of the things that you know bothered me about some of the um you know there's there's super valuable stuff in investor networking and events and all that kind of stuff but the reality also is that like a lot of the people who end up at the front of the room speaking are playing investing as a kind of a competitive sport
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so it means that like you know if you're a small investor who's like quite happy doing what you're doing you know like for me i reached my you know the number that i wanted to make with nine doors mm-hmm. but i feel like nobody tells that story right like a lot of the people who end up talking are the ones who are like oh you know whatever i closed on 100 units last week and right. <laughs> you not know, have 17 yeah. million like you know what i mean like it, it becomes this this bragging thing and so i think a lot of people are afraid to ask questions and i think a lot of people are afraid to just be like look no i you know i own Three single family homes, and that's the number I wanted to get to. And like now I'm happy with my day job, you know? Yeah,
0: it's so great you said that because, it, you know, one thing is I think when you have that goal, when you sit down and critically think, I tell people, you know, wake up an extra half hour early for just a week straight, right? And just for that one week every day, just focus on what your end financial goal is and kind of work backwards to see where you are. And you might be surprised that you don't need. Ten million dollars, right? You know, and all of a sudden, when you realize that, your goals become so much more obtainable when you tune out what you think your goals are because other people are kind of doing exactly exactly what you said. and about two weeks ago, i I met with a, a, a past student of mine who has done remarkably well, and he's in that multifamily space and and he is making substantial cash flow per month and it is a game to him now because he is at that point and I, and I came home and I was talking to a close friend of mine and I was like gosh I I feel behind all of a sudden and he said but aren't you you know hitting all your goals and you're on track and you know everything's great and I was like well it is and he said what are you doing like what and I caught myself the teacher the one that wrote the book all this stuff I caught myself after one conversation thinking oh my gosh I need to go buy an apartment complex and 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 I know that's not true like I know that's not true but it is amazing how
1: quickly it happens yeah so no so, yeah. I mean we're we're no' we're, we're human beings and I think like part of we have to realize like that part of what it is, is we're we're actually wired to refer constantly to what people around us are doing to sort of define how well we're doing right and it's like mm-hmm. there's a difference between internal motivation and external motivation and one thing is you know what do i want to do for me what is going to give me a kind of an internal sense of well-being versus what's going to make me feel like the yardstick that i used to measure myself with the outside world tells me oh i'm doing okay today right That's and right. Uh, those are two totally different things
0: yeah there's such a an unspoken psychology about investing i think you know, we talk about number of doors and money and and th- these black and white things that can be calculated and tangible, but yeah, there is this psychology that goes behind it that you're either fall into that bucket where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm behind, even though you may be super successful, or you fall into the bucket of the person that says it's just the game now. You know, it, there is a lot to it, and and you know, part of what I have a little bit in my book is just kind of sharing those experiences to say, gosh. You know, here's my background because I think when you talk to these investors, um, whether it's just you know us chatting or you're at a seminar or whatever, you have to understand the background of that person who's speaking to understand, wow, maybe we come from two totally different places, and the reason that person is doing that is because of their experiences, and, and I need to be okay with what I'm doing because of my experiences, but like you said, it. There's a lot there internally and externally that I don't think we give enough credit to um, when we talk about these things. So I'm glad you brought that up.
1: So what's your secret? I mean, how do you manage to, you know, be proud of small is beautiful and like kind of stay true to that, you know, at the level at which you've gotten to?
0: I don't know if I'm there yet, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think,
0: I think trying, I, I, you know, I have a daughter who's three years old and, and Ever since she was born, I really, really try to take stock in just being grateful that you know and keeping things in perspective and so um, when I feel that urge that I'm behind, um I have a tendency to to honestly look at her and be like, oh my gosh, I've got a healthy family, we've got another one on the way you know I've got all these things that aren't money related that are so great in my life that To go and just continually push on the business aspect could possibly hurt this beautiful thing I over, you know, over here. I'm gonna trade. There's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. 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 I think we all acknowledge that. And I think sometimes we focus more hours on driving these financial goals than sometimes keeping in perspective how many great things we have that aren't necessarily related to that. So that's one thing that I've really tried over the past couple of years to do. I still lose focus of it. Don't get me wrong. I lose my temper. I do all those things. You know, I'm, I'm human, but I think keeping perspective of some of those outside financial things in life is really important. I um, mean, the other thing I do is I'm always trying new things with not so much the idea that they're going to be these massive successes. So for instance, at the community college I teach at in, I try to teach different courses, you know, writing the book, you know, truth be told, I, I don't expect my book to compete with the number one bestsellers, right? It would be great, but that's not my expectation. So I just like the challenge, even if they're small challenges. So for me, I'm continually trying to look for small, reasonable challenges that keep my mind sharp. And if they make a few bucks, they make a few bucks. But that's, that's how I kind of try to keep myself grounded from going out and buying a 200-unit apartment complex that could bankrupt my family.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. So I think we're uh, just about running out of time. I When I get off this call, I'm definitely going to go buy your book. Can you tell people where you can find it?
0: Yeah. So you can find it on Amazon. The title is called Plug the Holes, Fill the Barrel. And if I can just kind of tell you where that title came from, because I think it's important. One of the lessons I've been teaching for years is that, you know, I think we need to understand how our finances work before we become investors. And so if you think of a a rain barrel at the end of the gutter as your bank account, and you think of one gutter coming into that gutter or into that barrel as your income, your job, most people have one gutter pouring into their savings account. And the reality is, is, you know, you're one gutter clog away. You're one bad storm away. From your income, kind of going away, and so I tell people to to keep your four-inch gutter pouring into that, but add a few small hoses. They don't have to be the same size, right? Add a couple rental properties, or add some sort of other income. So if you get a clog in that main gutter, you have the ability to easily grow those other small hoses into something else. I think a lot of people wait until they get that clog to try to discover what to fill, and at that time, it's really challenging. And then For the barrel itself, you know, our expenses, I think a lot of people envision just money in, money out. And you really need to think about different size holes in that barrel. I might have a softball size hole. That's my mortgage, a golf ball size hole. That's my car payment, you know, a pin size hole. That's a $3 cup of coffee, right? Those things. And if you start to think about how can I add more hoses in the barrel and slowly plug some of these holes, you will discover that, wow, what I really need may not be as, as massive as I thought. Um, and so I teach that plug the holes, fill the barrel. And I thought, well, I'll, uh, I'll name the book that and see what it does.
1: <laughs> That's a great metaphor. I love that. Thank great you. place to uh, end off. So uh, Jason, where can people, what's the best place for people to connect with you?
0: Yeah. So you can probably email me You can email me at Jason at investors, wealth education. So it's just J A S O N at investors,
1: Okay. Or I also found Jason on LinkedIn. So that's another option. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah.
0: We sell sell real estate. You put my name in a Google search, you're going to find me uh, somewhere. At least I hope so.
1: Good job. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing your wisdom with our audience, Jason. I'm wishing you a great day.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Terry. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating. Leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.